From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. It's 50 years since Let's Get It On changed the world of music, and so it makes all the sense in the world that my guest, Universal Music Enterprises VP and producer of many of the great reissues and compilations you've heard from you and me, Harry Weinger, has put together a deluxe edition of Let's Get It On. First of all, Harry, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. First of all, you think about the credits for the album, and the two of the Crusaders are already playing on it. You've mm-hmm. got... Joe Sample, and you've got Wilson Felder. So there's already, this for me, this connection to jazz funk. And it's also in that period where Marvin has just finished doing the Trouble Man album, where he has Sticks Hooper playing drums on that record. And Earl Palmer's on some of the tracks. Yeah. Because he worked with two different bands. There's an orchestra and there's a, a rhythm section. There's two different sessions. Because Trouble Man obviously connects to jazz as much as anything else and hearing Sticks Hooper on a couple of those tracks. But then hearing there's a song, an unreleased song on this called Song Number One. (laughs) First one of that session, let's call it Number One. I guess that works. And you had told me, but it's still surprising to hear as long as we're talking about jazz funk, that combination of Wilton Felder on bass and what was his name? Oh yes, Herbie Hancock on piano. On piano. You want to add to this, the entire rhythm section is with Paul Humphrey on drums. Paul Humphrey plays on Let's Let's Get Get It On. He's also the drummer on call for the middle sessions where Herbie's playing drums, uh, piano rather. It's an extraordinary moment where Herbie, from what I understand, had just moved to L.A. like Marvin had. He still had the Mwandishi band. He's promoting Sextant, so he's actually at the Troubadour in May of 73, and he's doing a show and then doing sessions after the set. So they've got like six nights at the Troubadour with the Pointer Sisters opening, which you know is a turning point for Herbie where he decides that he wants to shift, sees what the Pointers are doing, and wants to do something like what became Headhunters. The in-between sessions for him and for Marvin, they're together. Because that period, you know, we're talking about what became Headhunters, but also Herbie's playing on the Pointer Sisters' Steppin' album, and the, one of the guitarists playing on the album is Wawa Watson, who's also... On these sessions. <laughs> now, it bears repeating, because if you've seen it on Wawa's website, this is where they met. Their Marvin Gaye sessions are where the two of them met. And they went on to do five albums together. It's crazy because I had always assumed that they had met when they were doing that Pointer Sisters album. I never knew that he played with Marvin or for Marvin until this moment. But it's that moment where he's stepping between more ethereal sort of fusion mm-hmm. and moving into funk rhythms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's really exciting to hear that the explosive Herbie Hancock modality and, and impishness behind on a Marvin Gaye track. Yeah, yeah. And Marvin is clearly there. Some people have countered and said, well, maybe Marvin's playing, or maybe it's not Herbie, but, I mean, there's photos from the session. It's clearly Herbie. Marvin may have sat and showed, kind of here's the arrangement and idea that I have. But when you listen to the original session, so you sit with an engineer, listen to the multi-tracks, the touch is apparent from the moment you hear the piano being struck. You you kind of go, is, is that Herbie Hancock? Which we knew going in, but you still want oral evidence and you want in your gut to feel like that's really Herbie. 
and he's playing around. You know, he's trying out different ideas because I saw the other day and we were talking that there's a moment where someone is just banging away and you realize, oh, he's imitating Elton John because Honky Cat is having its moment. There's so much on this album that's so extraordinary to me. I mean, first of all, it's always great to hear Let's Get It On. And then for me, Let's Get It On is a bridge, in a weird way, between Trouble Man and I Want You. It's it's definitely that because it's there's still this kind of old-fashioned pop songwriting in that. And that, that move to more funk rhythm is the next step. I mean, that's where everybody's moving by 1975, 76. But it's really starting for me in a lot of ways on Let's Get It On. Well, you have a moment, too, where Barry White is introduced. You have Gene Page. Love Unlimited Orchestra. Yeah. It's the year of intervisions. Keep on trucking. Smokey's solo debut. Uh, Billy Preston will go around in circles. All this is beginning to pop in 73. And, you know, Marvin was... We've heard our friend David Ritz talk about this, where he's... You thinking, say David Ritz is the author of Divided Soul. Yeah, the author Soul, of Divided Soul. Among other books, The and Great Marvin Gaye. Yeah, that's the song. He's also the great uh, Marvin Gaye um, biography, uh, Divided Soul. Yeah. This idea that there's chaos, and then he harmonizes the chaos in his life. And so at this point, he's not sure what he's going to do, but this is really the first time he has real agency. Right. So what's going on establishes a certain agency, but he doesn't tour. He does Trouble Man, which is a risk. After what's going on, you're doing a jazz record. And a solo production, too. And, and Right. So he's still a little unsure, even with his agency. So he's trying to find different ways to get to where he wants to go, even though he doesn't know where he wants to go. So he's trying out a guy like Ed Townsend. Like you said, he's writing somewhat of a traditional pop song. Let's get it on at a different topic that Marvin transformed, but yeah, I mean, know. we should say, and and it's on this this collection, the the demo of of Let's Get It On is another social protest song. In some way, I, you sort of think it's the connection to Street Fighting Man, which is also the Stones inspired by Motown. I mean, for me, there's so many bridges connected here, right? And the unpacking for me, uh, which is what I get have the privilege to do, where you unpack the tracks. And you know that what's going on was essentially he had two voices. Let's get it on is becoming three and four, right? Where he's backing himself, except for one song. He's talking to himself and harmonizing with yeah, himself, sure. right? By the time you get to I Want You, I Want You, I think, is about seven or eight background vocals of overdubs and overdubs and over that are so beautiful and haunting. see he's making these leaps he's realizing what he can do with himself but that's what i think the the ballads tell us the vulnerable tracks that are on this collection and vulnerable was 97 i guess that was released vulnerable was an album released posthumously yes which were marvin's choices of ballads he had started recording in the 60s ballads and standards yeah had started obsessing over in fact, we should remind people, people don't know, he started his career wanting to do that. Yes. The ballads, I think, for me, are a way into understanding Marvin better and understand that there's so many shades of his career and his expression. He wanted to be, Smokey said it, I'm just quoting Smokey Robinson, who knew him well, he wanted to be a black Frank Sinatra. Sit on a stool, sing love songs. 
Perry Como, Nat King Cole, these are his idols, Little Jimmy Scott, people like that. I wanted to be really deeply expressive. But it wasn't mature enough to do it. You know, his first album, The Soulful Moods of Marvin Gaye, with that dreamy, quote-unquote, cover. I mean, he doesn't... He's singing witchcraft. I don't think you could compare him to Nat King Cole in that moment. But he does ballads throughout his career. And in 66, Bobby Scott is hired by Mickey Gentile, Motown's New York producer, to create a series of standard arrangements, for, arrangements of standards for Marvin to sing to. And that includes just eight songs, Nightlife, Shadow of Your Smile, Funny Not Much, uh, This Will Make You Laugh, I Won't Cry Anymore, etc. Only Nightlife gets released. It's okay. You know, he does vocals 67, 68, but he goes back to these arrangements, 70, 72, 73, and then again in 79, and the 79 vocals are what we know as the album posthumous album, Vulnerable. And what I think Marvin is learning to do throughout these, he's either, he either sings it very differently, but it's just him, but he does a lot of interacting with himself. There's vocals that layer on top of themselves. And he's, he's figuring out that I want to say this here and that here, and then we're going to combine them, which he'd really start to do with what's going on. It's the treatment we're talking to Harry Wanger, who has just put together a deluxe version for the 50th anniversary of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. You can also do the show at kcow.com slash the treatment. I remember hearing Let's Get It On as a kid for the first time and being scared the same way I was when I heard uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice. I mean, you almost feel you're hearing a fragmented mind. I mean, somebody having these conversations with himself. There's a, a kind of harmonious disorder in that to some extent, mm -hmm. and, and which is furthered uh, by the time we get to Let's get it on when he's actually, as you're saying. First of all, he's singing in his register. So you can also feel a comfort in his breathing that didn't exist up until that, that mm -hmm. point he starts doing that. And there's confidence, even though all these voices are competing for attention. The interesting thing about Marvin is he knew where to put his voice. What I remember vividly was hearing Al Green and hearing the voices in either ear on headphones. I'm still in love with you, all those kind of love and happiness. And so, you know, with Marvin, he really begins to perfect this. And uh, we were talking earlier about the shadow of your smile, which I want to bring back to 73 and why, why it's included in this set. Because, like I said, he does vocals in 68 and 70 and 72. And why aren't those versions on other deluxe editions that I've done. In 73, there's an overlap. It's the beginning of seeking out some other form of expression. And on some of the vocal tracks is Ed Townsend, whom we assume he reached out to and Ed brought him a song. I think this evidence tells me he's reaching out to Ed Townsend to say, how do I do that black Frank Sinatra stuff? Because Townsend is the guy on Capitol who has two albums arranged and conducted by Nelson Riddle, who did records with Sinatra and Nat King Cole. Who else are you going to call, right? And he had become a producer and songwriter and successful. And so, and he's old school and Marvin had produced the originals and got the doo-wop thing out there after doo-wop was dead and had Baby I'm For Real. And so I think here he is seeking another avenue of expression. And, 
you hear Ed urging him to sing harder, which he does in Let's Get It On, which he does in Come Get To This. You hear snatches of it in the standards like Shadow of Your Smile and Funny Not Much, where he's trying a low register or trying a higher register. He's melding things together, especially in Shadow of Your Smile, where he's singing to himself and he's talking about the wistful little star and his voice goes up and then he brings it back down. I'm, you know, just kind of blown away by that. Wistful little star Shadow of Your Smile Was out of this world Was much too high If you use it as a roadmap in a sense to what he eventually did you really hear how he started to open himself up to all of his other voices I think though in hearing that Shadow of Your Smile and again that night where you did the event at the Grammy Museum where you were on stage with Jimmy Jam and, and, and David Ritz and Smokey Robinson hearing that for the first time because I thought well it was Shadow of Your Smile I know this version I know him saying this and I heard that first verse where he goes up at the end of each line and he's changed the arrangement of the song. And it becomes, for me, kind of... There's a lot of songs that during that era where it's a plea, a plea for understanding, a plea for carnal knowledge, a plea to be heard. But there's also this exhibitionistic heartbreak in these songs, <laughs> which to me goes back to it's a desperate situation, which is the first time I'd heard that. I remember hearing that when that box came out 30 years ago and pulling over to the side mm. of the road in Detroit to listen to the entire mm. set, to hear the back announce so I could hear what the song was because I'd never heard it before. And I knew from the arrangements it had to be the late 60s, but yeah. it wasn't him singing entirely in his normal register. And and that emotional bruising that he brings to that song becomes the fundament of this version of The Shadow mm. of Your Smile, which... When you hear it, for me, like I was saying, it's like hearing that version of the Star Spangled Banner before the NBA All-Star game. You go, who thinks like this? <laughs> right. Uh, Ed Townsend told me a story that he had written, If I Should Die Tonight, he was having an affair with someone well-known. Um, and he uh, realized he had to end it. They had families and they had to end it. So he says, if I should die tonight, I won't be blue because I've known you. And... Marvin just wasn't getting it. And actually, on the deluxe, you can hear him introduce the song here. Marvin actually say before he sings the demo, I'll take one more rip at it, Ed, but I'm really not in the mood. It's right at, he's just saying it, and he does it anyway, and it's killer. But not the later version that we know and love. He told me that Marvin came back after he had met Janet, spent time with Janet, was going through this period of Jan, you mean Jan, Jan Gay, Jan, 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 Jan Hunter, Jan, Jan, and, yes. and beginning to separate from his wife. And he came back and he says, I can sing that son of a bitch now. I'm not that I'm going to ask you to hold that, the rest of your thoughts about this, of talking to Harry Wanger, who's a VP at Universal Music Enterprises, also produced a number of, I'm sure, your favorite uh, reissues and remasters and, and finding new treasures in the vault over Universal Music. This latest iteration of that is the 50th anniversary deluxe edition of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. Whew, that's a mouthful of treatment. Stay with us, more to go. <laughs>
Welcome back. It's the treatment. It's 50 years since the release of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. Harry Wanger, who is a VP and a producer at Universal Music Enterprises, he's supervised and sought out and put together, I hate to use the word curated, but I will say assembled and located tracks that have been on, I, am, I guarantee you, some of your favorite reissues and compilations. He's done several uh, Marvin Gaye uh, deluxe editions. Well, how much of this for you is hearing these things and going, why wasn't this released? Or, of course, it should have been released, because so often in these things you put together, there are those versions. I go back to that, well, what's going on, uh, deluxe edition, with the original version of the song, which starts off with him singing and then ends with the guys talking. For any artist, but particularly with Marvin, when you talk to anyone like a family member or someone like David Ritz, uh, anyone who's close to him or has a sense of the history and the artistry. I think Marvin is someone where you want to see the sketches. You want to go to the museum and see Da Vinci sketches and Picasso sketches, right? I, I mean, I would. You don't want to see the bad ones, but, you know, sometimes they're informative too. With Marvin... As one of the great geniuses of the 20th century, there's every reason to hear how he got to Let's Get It On. And so I certainly made qualitative decisions on that path to decide that we should hear all the ballads. We should hear not just song number three, which was on a deluxe edition 22 years ago, but song one, two, and four, because they are valid as part of the story. And initially, there wasn't room. Maybe I didn't think they were worthwhile. I didn't have the mature really? chops. Okay. You know, I don't think I had, for me, I just don't think I had the maturity to make something out of it. And when I went back to them, I said, what was I thinking then? Even with all the explorations he's doing in, in I Want You and Let's Get It On and Trouble Man, there's still Motown records to say they're still ruthless. There's still this sort of thing that we get this many songs on. There's roughly a 40-minute attention span yes. that our audience has. So you have, on this one sphere, there's Marvin operating and the the Jackson 5 and, and Diana Ross. But on the other side, there's Norman Whitfield and there's Stevie Wonder, performers and producers who are taking their time and really telling a story and laying things out. So for me to hear all of this textural stuff that you locate and have such a great ear for putting in the right place in the sequencing. And that's important, I think, as important as the original sequencing. Yeah, that's always a struggle. There's that section that takes us through songs one through four, and then the vulnerable sessions, which are, again, just so mind-blowingly different. But I mean, I imagine as, as a fan and an admirer of Motown, that again, that ruthlessness of Motown by saying, this is what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. We're going to leave you wanting more. So you immediately almost want to turn a record over and play it again back mm -hmm. in the day. There is a part of Marvin that literally and figuratively is missing, that he should have been as expansive, I think, as, as Stevie Wonder or Norman Whitfield, anybody else who was really laying out and taking their time and composing suites. I mean, there's a context to that, of course, you know, because Stevie did an album every year and Marvin essentially hadn't had a studio album. Let's set aside Trouble Man hadn't had a studio album more than two years. And there had been a long interregnum so, before what's going on, too. And there was a long time before that. So there's an urgency for product from the, the Dream Machine. And, you In know... Fact, they're, they're rushing out, let's get it on, aren't the they? The single was pulled before he was finished with the album and was out when he was still finishing tracks in June. He didn't finish the album until the 
end of July, and the record comes out three weeks into August. I don't know how. I think they were printing jackets while he was mixing. And that's what happened with What's Going On. I mean, the lyrics in the gatefold of What's Going On, the lyrics match the Detroit mix, not the final mix. Because he changed the mix, let's see, two weeks before the record was out. They had to replace the master. (laughs) This is what comes out of doing kind of the due diligence of writing down dates and seeing how things play out, and then you can tell these stories. I mean, Marvin is brilliant, so you... In a sense, if you can imagine being in the framework of an artist, of a person who worked at that company trying to manage the admin of this release, you want to get things out, but you also want to indulge them because you know it's Marvin. It's the treatment we're talking about, Motown marching on with Harry Wanger, VP and producer, Universal Music Enterprises. He's a symbol, I guarantee you, many of your favorite reissues and, and remasters and deluxe versions of music. His newest edition of this is the 50th anniversary of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. But I was also thinking, too, about those, as you were talking about this and whipping through that album cover, it almost explains why that cover has that blur. <laughs> <laughs> He's in motion. For me, that that album cover actually represents him in that period because there's something about moving from one place to another so quickly. And and what this collection gives us a chance to see is how fast his mind moved and that he could revisit these standards that he had done. I mean, there's this, you can hear the whir <laughs> as, as, as the gears are catching between the demo of, of Let's Get It On and the the version that we all know where you can feel him almost trying to commit to what he thinks is important, but you can sort of feel the space in, during the chorus where he's not actually yeah. interacting with the record. Right. He, he's reading the words, I think. I think he's telling Ed, here's what it sounds like. Give me a minute, right? Two weeks, I think, and I'll get to it. But you think about the way he holds, I've been really trying, that first mm-hmm. line, in the release version, you know, you can hear him finding the groove in the very first line of the song. And for me, again, it's he's, his breathing becomes different. So between 68, during the first recording of those, those standards, and then in 73, when he revisits the shadow of your smile, and he is holding notes for so long and extending... But you can feel the control. You can feel the power. It's what you're talking about for yourself. And I think with him, we can feel him having grown up. There's musical muscle there. And there's a playfulness in him doing Nat King Cole and coming so close to it, but still like extending a note in mid-phrase, which that didn't do so much. He relaxed. I think he listened to Lester Young before he cut What's Going On, just to kind of... Just to relax. And that's what I'm getting. That's the growth, is that he's relaxing into the story and the narrative. He reshaped the narrative of older songs for side two. You talk about his presence of mind and how he could pivot. Once he had the theme, let's get it on, if I should die tonight, please don't stay. Once you go away, even though he's singing, please stay, you sure love the ball. He's got a theme going, so he reaches back. So come get to this distant lover and just to keep you satisfied are Detroit recordings that he started while he's recording what's going on that he left behind so imagine if he hadn't touched those those are outtakes from what's going on 
but he went back to them. Distant lover, he went back to 20 times. Unheard of in the world of Motown. It's so funny because as we're talking about all these 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 records and Trouble Man being in the middle of all of them, I think of him as having his focus deepened by having a collaborator, you know, be it Leon Ware or David Van Der Pitt or, or Ed Townsend. Or Whitfield. Or Whitfield or his brother. Mm-hmm. I mean, having a collaborator, having somebody there to bounce ideas off of and having somebody there to, to sort of take his measure and to compete with. Because, I mean, there's a breezy jam feeling to a lot of Trouble Man. That, but it doesn't have the focus of these records. And also, from what you do and the way you assemble these things, you can see how that focus deepens on every iteration of these songs. Is that the fun of it for you? I think so. What happens for me is I appreciate the original record more. Because you start to fall in love with the alternates. Do you? Know? you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You. Fall, I mean, the alternate that we heard of Satisfied that John Morales mixed and, you know, the... The way that Salam Remy heard If I Should Die Tonight, where you combine the demo and the finished vocal with just piano, and you're thinking, I'd never heard it that way. I've never heard it that way, like like that at all. And in fact, this is just, shall we say, my version of it. Whoever takes this chair next, you could do a complete instrumental version of the record that would be totally credible as an instrumental record. You absolutely could, because it's like I was saying about listening to some of the tracks uh, from from I Want You and, and, and that original, or the version you found that without that fanfare playing over it, where you just get to hear James Gadsden and you get to hear Wawa Watson come in. You're hearing the the, the strings. coffee. And yeah, the, 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 first, that's, that's a killer group of mm-hmm. guitarists. Um, but hearing those rhythm tracks and hearing those instrumentals, again, for me, it's going back to Trouble Man, where he just was... Sort of you can feel him as a club performer and not as a supper club performer, but as a jazz club performer. He has the count of a drummer, but also the 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 melisma of a pianist. But when he plays for himself, which wasn't very often, when he played accompanying himself on piano, it was like hearing Aretha. You could hear how his phrasing had changed when he played piano for himself, couldn't you? And what's going on? He plays piano. The uh, Let me just um, come back to that thought that after you fall in love with the alternates sure. and you begin the assembly... And you have the original album, which is the original album, is the original album. It's a classic. Don't mess with it. Enhance, you know, enhance a little bit in mastering, but don't mess with it. And you realize how incredible those mixes are. Cal Harris, Motown engineer, um, started the Black Engineer training program there. I mean, incredible. So you have a new appreciation for what they were able to do from all these different strains, all these different voices all these different ideas, they collaborate on something so intact. It's so self-contained and beautiful. You can't really take that album apart, even though in the 50th I did, and you can. But the original album, that one through eight, the flow of it, where the vocals sit, where the strings sit, that's just all inspiring to me. My guest producer and Universal Music Enterprises Vice President Harry Weinger's newest project is the deluxe edition of the 50th anniversary of Let's Get It On. I wonder where we'll be in 10 years. I hope you come back before then, Harry. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It's so great to be here, Elvis. I appreciate it. (laughs) 
As part of Harry Winger's job as Vice President at Universal Music Enterprises, he assembles and releases some of the most interesting music reissues on the market. His newest such project is Let's Get It On, the deluxe edition for the 50th anniversary of Marvin Gaye's classic recording. The intersection of sports, politics, and style. Catch up with previous editions of this show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. Still trying to put up three pointers. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. We all talk. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. My guest, the award-winning journalist Mitchell Jackson, has shown us how fly he is with his book, Fly, which is the sartorial history of the NBA. I can't thank you enough for doing the show, man. Really, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's something that's so interesting because for me, the book is about politics and how for African-American athletes, well, what they wear has always been a political statement, hasn't it? Yeah, I think you can't, you can't ever divorce what people are wearing from the the choices that they have to make about what's available to them, about what the rules are, wherever they are, about, uh, you know, what designers think is cool and not cool, what the street kids are wearing. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think it's really politics and culture. I mean, I think it's so interesting because you break the book down into eras and you basically have the civil rights era, but then you break, you you move into for me, I mean, I know that that's, that 1964 period is really important, obviously, but the era starting in the 70s where we get Clyde Frazier, let's not be shy about it, the first man to have a sneaker named after him, that great Esquire magazine cover, he's in mid-flight in that beautiful suit doing a skyhook on somebody. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Clyde is, I mean, he was a guy. I think he, one of the first guys, I don't want to say the first because, you know, Wilt Chamberlain's a, predates him. And I think Wilt was also a very fashionable player, but one of the first guys to really lean into um, fashion and also to have the evidence of it. Like they were taking pictures of him, but all the other guy, a lot of the guys, we didn't know them. There's one of my favorite pictures in there. It's um, it's Moses Malone at home and he's he's got a checkerboard (laughs) and he has on like a checkerboard shirt. And I was like, wow, Moses was fly too? Like, who knew Moses was fly? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Come on now. I mean, one of my favorite pictures in the book. I want to ask you about this. You're a picture of Pistol Pete. Yeah, man, that's my favorite pet. That's my favorite one. Because, and it's, it's also one of the very last photos that we we picked. Um, I, something happened with the rights to a photo. And, and I was trying to, I was thinking of players from that era. And, you know, it, it always really is striking to me when a player's fashion represents what I believe of their identity. So so to see Pistol Pete in that butterfly collar with the diamond, and, I mean, the gold chain with the diamond pendant and the sunglasses. The aviators, you know, yes. Like, <laughs> yeah, he looked like he played, right? If you ever remember seeing Pistol Pete play, I mean, he was a Kyrie Irving you know, Jason Williams all in one, very flamboyant, no doubt, flashy. No doubt. Yes. 
Um, and so to me, that outfit really represented him. And also, I had never, ever seen Pistol Pete in street clothes. So so to be able to see a, a representation of the player that I, you know, I grew up watching his tapes and I couldn't play like him. I didn't. I never had oh, that kind had of ball handling skill. Oh, you had those Pistol Pete dribble tapes? Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so I, I was, I was like, okay, this guy, this, this is really special to me to be able to see this. And it's interesting because I thought of that sort of picture and I thought that really is sort of like black flavor being manifest by, by somebody who's not a black player. Yeah. To me, all of this is improvisation, right? And, you know, if I, if I, I'm not a huge jazz person, so I don't want to mislead people, but I do like jazz. And more importantly, I like, the craft of jazz music and the way that they're improvising, but from a set of principles, right? Like you got to play a long time to know how to improvise. And I think that black people have mastered the art of imp improvisation on a whole, right? That we are given a set of strictures. You can call them Jim Crow. You can call them, you know, whatever kind of mandate you were And inside of that we improvise. And so I think clearly Pistol Pete, had been around black people to have that kind of improvisation in his game. Sure. You think about where he was playing too, that, that definitely had to have an impact. But I think for me, I can't look at the book and not sort of see the intersection of the beginning, the beginning explosions of hip hop, which we're now in the 50th year. And what yeah. that did, you start seeing black style really blow up. You mentioned Wilt. And for me, as much as Wilt was definitely stylish, he was his own guy. I mean, because when you're over seven feet tall, you're wearing that stuff. That's not like you're going to walk into, you know, Nordstrom and pick one of those bad boys up. But exactly. um, but Clyde was one of those guys who made it like you could dress like that. And, and that's the beginning of that. I mean, you had that great picture of Dr. J in that monochrome cream outfit breaking out with his gold with his, with his gold Omega digital watch and, and the shoes matching the tint and the glasses. Yeah. I mean, classic. And one, also one of my favorite ones, the Afro. I mean, his he had the two rings on and the gold digital watch. I mean, that was cold. Um, I think I, I like what you're saying about it's hard to to see a Shaquille O'Neal or a Hakeem Olajuwon or a Wilt Chamberlain and think that that's a, a style that you can emulate. And I'll say that I think it's also just a little bit hard to see a Walt Frazier or those guys because those were still six, six guys, you know, six, five. That's still way above the average height. But I think when we're talking about hip hop, that Iverson is the height of an average man. Right. And so I think that he came along at an era where hip hop was the most dominant cultural uh, phenomenon in America and maybe in the world. You could emulate Iverson because he was the same size as most of the guys you knew. Right. I mean, Iverson's six feet, if that he was one hundred and sixty something pounds, I think, when he played. So so you, you could definitely I could see myself wearing Iverson styles because he, he wasn't out of this world you know, size to me. But he's also wearing street styles. He broke out the Pele Pele, you know, he had the FUBU. I mean, he's wearing the stuff. I mean, he had a do-rag on. He dressed the way yeah. people you knew dressed. Oh, no question. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, some people think like, oh, Iverson, he brought hip-hop to the league, but Iverson was a reflection of the neighborhood, you know? And also, I think that you can't divorce Iverson from what Jermaine O'Neal was doing. He was the same class. You know, what Antoine Walker was doing, what Stefan, I mean, people forget Stefan Marbury was on par with Allen Iverson in terms of playing early on. So all of those guys were dressing in the same way. They were just reflections in the hood. Um, so it didn't seem like it wasn't people were like, well, Iverson changed the league. I mean, yes, he did. 
but he didn't necessarily influence me because he was a reflection of how I was dressing. I'm, I'm roughly the same age as Iverson. So we were all, it wasn't special what he was doing. He just had a bigger platform for it. But there's also so much too, and, and you touched on this so much about, you know, that flavor that, that, that black culture brought to the NPA. And, and what that does, that, that point where hip hop couldn't have been scarier. That's the days of C. Dolores Tucker. That's the, yeah. late, the days of when everything was scary and black culture really scared people. And you had, David Stern running the NBA, stepping up and saying, no, y'all got to go back to wearing suits again. I mean, the, just yeah. that friction of being a, a, a black man standing up for who and what you were, that was a real political statement too, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, also think about a little prior to that, we get, you know, the super predator in, in Clinton. Um, Absolutely. We get the cocaine laws, right, which are targeting African-Americans. So it really is political the way that they are targeting black men, making everyone out to be a drug dealer, penalizing them. Right. Creating this. You know, if we I mean, this, the super predator is the same thing, you know, that they were doing back in the day when they said black men was taking cocaine and, and, and raping women when they outlawed cocaine. And I don't know, the 19 late 19th century, right? Or early 20th century. So it's definitely in the twenties. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, so it's the same playbook, but again, what the NBA players are doing are pushing against that. And thankfully the league allowed them to do that in a way. I mean, I know obviously we had the dress code, but no one really got kicked out of the league for that. No one, you know, got suspended for multiple games because they violated the dress code. So it was always kind of a loose dress code, even though there were still those strictures. Yeah, there are a lot of heavy fines. <laughs> yeah, oh, no question. No question. <laughs> it's the treatment. My guest is the author of the really cool new book, Fly, Mitchell Jackson. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. But as you were talking about the super predator, I remember because there's people who didn't vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016 because they still remember that statement. Mm-hmm. I remember when that, and I want to ask you about including this picture or not including it rather, that picture of LeBron on the cover of Vogue, which I'm sorry, made me snap right back to that. Yeah, man, that was a really, I mean, it was the first time I think that a black man had been on the cover. He was there with Giselle. If you look at it, I mean, it's like, what is it, King Kong and a damsel in distress, you know? Absolutely. To me, that was very racially charged. I know he caught a lot of flag vote, caught a lot of flag. So I always am surprised when, when these publications or these brands seem flabbergasted when there's blowback from these decisions because... (laughs) So many people have to sign off on any one decision. Like, imagine how many people saw that cover before it ever hit the world and said, oh, yeah, this is cool. Like, let's make LeBron look like a raging ape and let's have this damsel on the side of him. And no one was like, oh, this is racist. I can't believe that no one saw that. So I I think people have to kind of claim ownership of of those in a way that's not like, oh, we didn't know what was happening. Yeah, y'all did. Somebody knew. Of the hundreds of people that saw that and okayed it, somebody had to see it. Even in the days before people really started to proclaim themselves, there's so many double-breasted suits with peak lapels in them. I mean, that goes back, you got pictures of everybody from the 60s. And that, to me, has kind of almost always been the NBA look. From then, you can see LeBron rocking that now. To some point, everybody's busting out the double-breasted suit with the peak lapels. Yeah. That, to me, has always been about street style. I mean, I think that suit says... I've arrived and I'm serious. I think that's why we see people hearkening back to that. Um, because it's like the power suit, right? Like think about Gordon Gecko uh, in Wall Street, right? Or 
or Pat Riley, you know, I mean, I don't talk about Pat Riley in this book, but because he was, to me, Pat Riley wasn't influential as a player. He was influential as a coach. Not, not that he wasn't influential, but stylistically, he was more influential as a coach than he was a player. But that those suits, I mean, you know, I'm sure that Magic was taking cues from him. I'm sure that Jordan was taking cues from Pat Riley, right? Like all those guys were dressing up like bankers, really. It's funny because when you say that to me, that's West Coast style. And I can't see those suits and not think about when um, Kobe first started wearing those Tom Ford suits. That to me is like basically him sort of nodding to, to Pat Riley, isn't it? Uh, for sure. For sure. Impeccable tailoring. And Kobe, I don't think, doesn't get a lot of credit for that. But he really stepped into that. I mean, who was wearing Tom Ford at the time? No one was wearing Tom Ford. Those guys were still getting custom suits. And here he is getting Tom Ford suits with the very perfect inseam on them and the sheen on them and the right hard sole, you know, shoes like that was in the tailoring was like impeccable. That was really great looks. by I think he was on the cover of uh, GQ in those looks. And I do think that Riley, and I'm glad you, we're talking about this because Riley becomes that sort of, that thing that you say, you know, you see magic starting to wear those suits like that, stepping away from the Michael Jordan oh, suits, three sizes too big. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, moving into that era, and I think we can't have LeBron and we don't have Westbrook or any of these guys, that kind of tailoring without the example of Kobe, who really, for me, is the beginning of the 20th century in NBA style. Yeah, I agree. And also because at that time you had to be a star. Now you don't have to be a star for people to pay attention to what you're wearing. But back then it was only the stars who we saw because also the tunnel didn't exist. Right. So you would really only see them, you know, coming into the game, maybe on Christmas Day if they had a Christmas Day game or in the magazines. And in order to be in a magazine, you had to be a big NBA star. So credit to the to the huge stars that really pushed the fashion because they opened up the door for for guys like Westbrook and Jeremy Grant to come through and and still be recognized for their fashion sense, but not be like household names. Sure. As long as we're talking about that era and different kinds of impacts, we could put it this way. We had an era where you had Allen Iverson, Kobe, <laughs> Pat Riley, and Dennis Rodman. I mean, if that's not about individuality in the league, I don't know what is. Remarkable, right? That those guys, and I, I mean, I put Dennis in a in a, an earlier era than those guys, but he's still around and enough to influence people. I think I think of all the people, Dennis is ahead of his time, right? Like you think about those looks he he was painting his fingernails, and he wore the makeup to the when he had the wedding dress on. You know, he was wearing the camisoles and the little tank tops. I mean, Dennis was really pushing boundaries. I think that the way that he was doing it was kind of tongue in cheek in a way, like, I want this to be fodder for conversation. I do think that he also was representing himself, but I think the guys now feel more comfortable in it than, not maybe not more comfortable in it, but I think they're, they might be doing it for a different reason. Like, it doesn't feel so shocking now as it did when Dennis Rodman was doing it. It's funny, because when I saw that, I thought there's almost always a, somebody who's like almost in costume, and we go from Wilt to to Rodman and also Rodman too to your point I mean he had gone from playing with the Pistons I'm from Detroit by the way he'd gone from the Pistons to the Bulls and you go to the two most masculine teams in the league who are all elbows and making sure somebody gets hurt under the rim suddenly use this as a way to start having a conversation about what toxic masculinity can be right I think yes obviously he's he's on the continuum of us talking about toxic masculinity I think it's 
no disrespect to your bad boys, but they're like the probably the, the poster children. It sounds like disrespect. For toxic I can't masculinity. wait to hear where you go with it. <laughs> I mean, they, if we're talking about what toxic masculinity looks like in basketball, the Detroit Pistons are the paragons of that, right? Like the Jordan rules, elbowing people. I mean, is there a team that was more physical and more maybe dirty? Rick Mahorn, like, come on, man. Those those were the teams. And so, I mean, obviously it works for y'all, right? You got the you got the two peaks. So clearly it was working, but I do think that that and but but also we're so far away from that now, right? Like that gave us the no hand checking rules, right? That gave us the league that we have now where everybody's scoring 120 and 130 points a game and players are getting $300 million contracts. Like, I don't think we get to that with bad boy basketball. And those contracts are also responsible for birthing other opportunities for these players, right? Now they have massive, the more massive audience than they did back in the day. So they're able to be fashion icons. I will say, though, they might want to get back to some of that bad boy if they're going to keep losing over in the Olympics and the world championships. What we're really talking about now, and you mentioned that it gets to the book in the in the uh, in the Insta era, and basically treating the tunnel as a runway, is these guys are now all branding themselves. I remember when Tom Brown called me, he said, "Why does LeBron James know who I am?" I went, "I think he's grown up because you think about what he looked like in that suit, that big white suit that you have the picture of, which, by the way, is now back in style, uh, <laughs> to who he is now, and also." So what we were talking about, about politics, about LeBron wearing the hoodie on the floor. And you have yep. a picture of him in the uh, I Can't Breathe t-shirt. I mean, this is somebody who understands in that way that Kareem did about how politics, how you wear your politics. You don't just talk about them. And then you, you look at the 80s of Michael Jordan, who was so busy being a brand that he almost forgot where he came from. And, and we yep. both know about that. Republicans wear shoes, too. Well, they do. But anyway... So for LeBron to do a, a 180 on that, for me, this book is really about the continuum of responsibility. Yeah, I agree, man. And, you know, one thing I think, no, no disrespect to Kareem, uh, you know, and back to Jim Brown even and, and, and other sports and Muhammad Ali, right? Like all of those guys, it's not just a one person doing it. It's, it's, a, it's a group of them doing it. I think LeBron, to me, more is indicative of... Um, or more in, in aligned with Muhammad Ali than he is with Jim Brown and Kareem because he has a personality. Like Kareem was never to me, and and I'm I'm younger. I didn't see him in his prime like when I was a kid, but he's never been very personable to me. Or not in the same way. He doesn't have like that magnetic personality of a magic or a Muhammad Ali. And I think LeBron has that magnetic personality. So he's doing these things, but he also he also endears you to him as well, right? So it's really hard to to hate LeBron in the same way as you might a Jim Brown or a Kareem who, who have these kind of adversarial public personas. Well, we're out of time. I can't thank you enough. My guest, who's a troublemaker when it comes to talking about the old Detroit <laughs> Pistons, is Mitchell Jackson. His really great new book on style in the NBA is fly. Mitchell, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I had a great talk. Mitchell Jackson is a Pulitzer Prize winning writer and if you check out Esquire.com you'll see he's as niftily attired as the subjects of his new book Fly, the big book of basketball fashion which is out now Wonder what inspired the shifting loyalties and widescreen vistas of the John Wick films? It's the treat from Chad Stahelski, the director of the Wick series, is next. Past editions of The Treat are at kcrw.com slash the treat.
It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. With The Treat is director Chas Tehelsky, who brought us John Wick and its sequels on a film ahead of its time that gave new definition to the phrase, action epic. I'm Chad Stahelski, and this is The Treat. John Wick was heavily inspired by Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. The ability to have a trilogy of characters rotate around and constantly change alliances and constantly deal with the dilemmas that happen was fascinating to me. You combine that with the Japanese movie franchise of Zatoichi, the Wujang films of Wong Kar Wai and Zhang Yimou. They tie it all together with a little David Lean from Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, just in terms of scale, storytelling, and character alliances and how they actually rotate through in the philosophy that we have a lot of a little. I mean, you use every single character, every single set piece, every single obstacle or dilemma as a way to reflect on who the character is. All those helped influence me on that. So those are like the big things that that John Wick Chapter 4 is all an amalgamation of. Nice guy, my brother. I didn't tell you my brother was in charge here. Everything, like the Pope almost. He's Most people would have looked at the whole Tuco yeah, bringing Blondie over to his brother's monastery. You could have easily cut out a bunch of that. You could have chopped a ton of that out. Well, at the end of the day, it's the one thing that gives Tuco that little bit. I mean, that's why I think Blondie leaves him alive. You know, it's a little side of Tuco. And just to see that Clint Eastwood character just kind of went along with it. My brother, he loves me. And he goes, yep, yep, yep. And that right there, that's the bonding moment right there. That's the great moment. And it easily could have been cut out due to runtime. I know there's a brother somewhere who'll never refuse me a bowl of soup. Sure. Well, after a meal, there's nothing like a good cigar. Perfect example of how to take a breath show a different side of a character and like really fall in love with the relationship. You're all alone, huh? Like me, Blondie. We're all alone in the world. Uh, I have you, you have me. Only for a little while, I mean. It had to happen now. Leone hit on that, you know, what all the other Westerns were trying to get at, and they were all more like stories and stuff, and he kind of went this whole different route, which is still a very fascinating way to tell stories to me. John Wick directed Chas Tehelsky with a treat that changed movies and him forever. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The epic, the intimate, the esoteric, the hugely popular, all beats in the culture that set hearts aflame and careers into motion. It's what we call the treat. And that's what we call a show. Produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist. What we call help, it came this week from Anna Bus, Laura Kondarajan, and Rick Warner. To better days, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. Treatment.